Brethren, I give you greetings from Trinity Baptist Church, and it is a privilege for me to be here this morning and to open up God's Word, and I'm thankful to see even a couple uh, others from Trinity here this morning, so, uh, but thank you for the opportunity to come, and would you pray with me as we seek God's face one more time. Our Father and our God, we bow before you and ask for the spirit of holiness, for the spirit of Christ, the spirit of your word, to come and be our guide, to be our teacher. We pray that you might fill us with that same spirit that glorified Christ on the earth and even now is working in all the earth to glorify his name. And so would you come and Would you please glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you fill us with that spirit? Would you fill us with his power? Would you strengthen us, both speaker and hearer alike, that you might might show us wondrous things from your word, that you might even manifest your glory, that you might reveal to us your goodness and your mercy and your grace in the Lord Jesus. Come, we pray. Help us to handle Invisible things, spiritual things, help us, help us to handle holy things. May we bow our hearts before you and not come before you in a rushing way, a casual way, but would you purify us and help us with reverence and honor, even as we pray in your Son's precious name, amen. Well, family is more important than you think. There's a lot that our world gets wrong about family today. Family used to be essential. It used to be essential to have a family in order to have children. And nowadays you can rent a womb. It used to be uh, essential to have uh, a man and a woman to start a family, and now apparently you can have whatever combination you like. Family planning has become a euphemism for a service provided at Planned Parenthood for abortion. Families uh, are misunderstood. They are even reviled by the world. Traditional family values, that's become a, a byword. And if it's not the world's misconceptions, then there's plenty of sin and disease, distance, death to tear apart families. And still, God has placed us all in families. And for all of the uh, misunderstandings about family, for all of the uh, distortions that there are, I want us to see something this morning of the surpassing nature, something of the glory of family as God has intended it. And so would you turn back to Mark chapter 3. As we come in at the, bit, the very first days of the Lord Jesus' ministries on earth. These early days when there were perhaps fewer of the distortions and perversions than we have today, and yet there was still... Uh, they, they had no, 
no less a need to be corrected on family as we do. Read with me, starting in Mark chapter 3, verse 31. And his mother, that is Jesus' mother and his brothers, came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now I want you to see here first that there is a calling. There's a family calling when it says that Jesus' mother and his brothers came and they were calling for him. And they came in the midst of very excited circumstances. You see, Jesus' popularity was rising. There was much excitement for his ministry, for these works that he was doing, teaching with authority. But there was also, with that rising regard, there was rising opposition to who Jesus was and what he was doing. You have friends who were reproaching him and saying that he is out of his mind. You had religious leaders who were plotting his very destruction. You had demons who were oppressing. Accusations were flying about him, even that he was possessed by demons. And there were crowds that were threatening him. Here we have uh, those crowds that are funneled into one house. They're packed in. It's, It's hard to get to Jesus, and so his family comes, and they send messengers. They call on him. And I want to just stop and and note that this really was Jesus' family. He was a real man, and he had a real family. The fact of the incarnation is that Jesus was not just God, but he was God in the flesh. And so for 30-some years, Jesus lived under the same same roof as this bunch. Um, He loved them, and... Uh, he would have breakfast with them. And there was one day where he had his last breakfast and he left the house and he went on to do his ministry. This was a real man with a real family. And here is a real interruption. It's another interruption uh, because Jesus has already been interrupted multiple times at the beginning of Mark here. Uh, Again, I mentioned the accusations where he is ministering and doing good And all of a sudden, he is confronted with uh, these accusations of demon possession. There are enthusiastic crowds, even to the extent where Jesus and his disciples had to take precautions uh, lest the people crush him. And so he's, he's, uh, he's misunderstood by the Pharisees, and so they make accusations against him. He is teaching now revealing gracious gospel promises like all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men. And now his family, being unbelieving and ignorant, it seems, at this point, doesn't understand what he's doing, doesn't see the usefulness of it, and they come and call upon him. Now, granted, their concern was probably... Uh, very understandable, probably very natural, the concerns that they may have had. They could see the, the uh, crowds that, whose numbers were added uh, day by day, seeing how it prevented him from eating at times, it threatened to crush him. Um, there were 
Pharisees, these religious leaders who could pull strings and who had, had sway within the community, they could see how Jesus' attitude toward these hypocritical men could be a, uh, a liability. He could be, um, it, it could be endangering him to speak about them this way. After all, they are pro- plotting to destroy him. Some of the people thought he was out of his mind. They wanted to remove him out of the spotlight by force. Whether or not that was Mary and his brothers, we do not know. Uh, it was read, and, and the ESV has in verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. That's perhaps not the best translation, but be that as it may, uh, here his family was interfering with his ministry. And far from being thrown off or not knowing what to say like might happen to me or some of us when someone interrupts us or says, your mom is waiting for you outside, Jesus capitalizes on this opportunity. There are many times when Jesus is interrupted that it becomes a golden opportunity for the revealing of his wisdom, his love, or his grace. Think of the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus was not headed toward her. She grabbed him on his way to do good works. And what, the, what did that become but a gracious revealing of his, his compassion toward that woman? And so this time is no different. Everything for the Lord Jesus is a springboard to heaven. Heavenly realities. His mind is fixed on these spiritual things. And so instead of being annoyed at his, his interruption here or making some passive-aggressive comment like I might do, he uses the opportunity to turn the disciples' attention to spiritual things and how we must be like him. How we must not let the urgent uh, calls of the moment swallow opportunities for spiritual gain. Jesus here reminds us of Nehemiah on that occasion when he was building the wall and he was sent for. Someone called upon him to come away from his work and he said, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. And so, with this family calling, Jesus issues a challenge. He issues a family challenge where it says in answering them in verse 33, he asks a challenging question. Who are my mother and my brothers? Now in the face of it, this is a surprising question. It was probably surprising to the people there because they would have expected him to get up and go. Your family's calling. Your mom wants you. And out of respect or, or honor, uh, they might expect Jesus to go and to see what the matter is and to deal with his family. It's a surprising question to us. It's as if you came to me this morning and said, hey, Joe, there's an officer outside and he wants to speak to you. And I say, well, what really is a police officer? You say, well, that, that's a silly question and you really need to go right now. He's waiting for you. Shouldn't keep him waiting. It might seem to us like Jesus was snubbing his earthly family by asking this. But instead, he wants to make his followers stop and consider. If you think to Jesus in the garden when Adam sinned, what did God ask? He said, Adam, where are you? God asked that not for his good, but for Adam's. 
And so Jesus is asking, not for his own good, but for theirs. This was a challenge to his loyalty when his family came to call upon him. His family's calling was a challenge to his loyalty. The question was, does family come first? Here you have these disciples who are devoted to him, who have come and are sitting at his feet, eager to receive the word. And so should Jesus abandon his family, uh, excuse me, his disciples, to go to his family? Should he address his family instead of addressing his followers? His followers seem to be believing, trusting, eager. His family seems to be unbelieving and ignorant. And so what is Jesus' priority right now? Who does he have the highest regard for? And we see that his first allegiance is to God. Like Jeremy Walker says, he does not have a disregard for his family. He shows a priority for God's will, not theirs. See, when it comes to matters of doing God's work, of ministry, his family doesn't get to steer the agenda. And so we see what relationship matters most to him. His loyalty to God surpasses his loyalty to his natural family. His love toward his spiritual family surpasses his love toward his natural family. And that's not to say he didn't love his natural family. You think of his relationship to Mary and how Luke tells us that he continued in submission, in subjection, excuse me, to Joseph and Mary at the very cross in his moment of agony. His love for Mary compelled her to commit her, assign her care to the Apostle John, make provision for her even in that moment. And so there was great love for his natural family, but there was a group that was even dearer to him. His love surpassed his love for his natural family. And those are bonds that are not of flesh, but they are of the Spirit. He had the highest regard for relationships that are hard to see because they are, they are held by faith. And there's an attachment that comes naturally, and there's a superior kind that comes spiritually. We see this contrast presented at another time, perhaps a parallel occasion in Luke, when we read that a woman comes and raises her voice in the crowd, and she says to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. You notice the fleshly nature of it. But Jesus says, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, what, what's the value of shared DNA if there's not a shared desire to obey? That devotion knits us together and creates a relationship that is stronger than blood or DNA. That's what unites eternal, lasting family members, a family of heaven and this kindred of Christ. And so see, then, a challenging family. Because who was this family that Jesus was alluding to? If it's not the one waiting at the door, then who does it include? And you see there, that in verse 34, he looks about at those who sat around him. So who's this group that's dearly loved? Are they sons of kings? Is it an impressive, brilliant group? Well, it's the twelve. 
and, and no doubt more. But who were these 12? Do they have the highest paying uh, careers? Do they win awards? No, they're fishermen. There's one that's a tax collector. He's a public servant, and yet he is despised by his own people. There's Simon the Zealot, an anarchist. They're unremarkable people. In fact, Jesus would later say of them that they are cowardly. They're men of little faith, like in the boat when they were terrified in the storm. They were those who would scatter like sheep at Jesus' arrest. These are men who are full of rivalry and divisions. They held arguments about who would get the best seat next to Jesus. Who was the greatest among them? And so behold, the family of God, cowardly, pitiful, argumentative men. They're nobodies. They're spiritual weaklings. It was always a point of pride in my family that we had a WNBA champion uh, in our in our family. Uh, and it, you, if you've ever done any kind of uh, tracing of your lineage or family tree, you know, we get excited if we find out, oh, there's royalty. You know, there was a king on this side of the family, or, or I'm related to somebody famous. We get excited when we just have the same birthday as some celebrity. But Jesus could boast of no such connection. These were 12 men who were full of faults and foibles, And yet Jesus took such men and knit them together into a family. He made them into an amazingly influential community. Jesus' affections, you see, are not for the richest and the ones with the the greatest social following, the most beautiful, the most successful. His greatest delight are in those who are simply and sincerely striving to please God. That's what matters most to him. Because, of course, that was his agenda. The will of God was the very bread of Jesus' life. He said, my food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus loves God's will. And so he loves those who love God's will. And so when his loving eyes scan the room, those who sit eagerly at his feet those who are packed into this room. He sees disciples with all of their spiritual immaturity, and yet he's not ashamed to call them brothers. But Jesus, them? Family? I mean, do you know what what they've done? Do you know how often their thoughts have strayed? Do you realize how much they're still going to sin? And yet here is the love of Christ adding grace upon grace, maybe more willing to love than we are to be loved. And Christian, if you find yourself beating yourself up, eager to acknowledge your weakness, your sinful members, those unsanctified parts of your flesh, bemoaning your own proneness to sin, well, here is a gracious Savior who can look upon His disciples in that same condition of spiritual immaturity and need, and see sincere God-fearers. And so despite your history, despite your sins, despite the sins of this past week, or even the past five minutes, Jesus is not ashamed to call you family Christian. 
You are dear to Christ, as dear as a mother or brother or sister. He remembers you. He sees you. And what does he see? They're not only those members of the family, but see that there's a characteristic of this family, a family characteristic. And that is, whoever does the will of God. See, God makes families with common traits. Do you have a prominent trait in your family? Something that everybody knows you are, you're one of those because you have that particular feature. Last week I was talking to someone and they had a large nose in their family and they were just waiting to see which of their children was going to inherit that large nose. With each one of our children, there's interest in who are they going to look more like? Do they look more like dad or like mom? Because that's the way God has made things. There's going to be a family resemblance. And so what was the distinguishing trait of the family of God, of these that Christ was pleased to call dear to himself? Did they all have a great library of theology books at home? Did they all get goosebumps during worship? What was the distinguishing trait? Obedience to God. Simple, daily obedience in things great and small. Doing the will of God. I want you to notice four aspects of this family trait, of this family characteristic. And the first is that it's strong-willed. It has to do with the will of God. Now I know, and I remember in watching Isle of Lucy, there was this depiction that Cubans have a bad temper. And you know all the different stereotypes about different kind of people groups and what they are known for. Well, this trait has to do with a strong will. People in Christ's family are strongly will-centric. Now, knowing God's will can at times be challenging. And there is no end to the number of books that are written about how to discern God's will for your life, and especially someone setting out looking at colleges or where they're going to live or where they're going to work. There are a lot of practical choices involved, and we need to know God's will for those matters in our life. We need to search the scriptures, and we can find hundreds of individual mandates or examples even just in the Gospel of Mark, dozens of examples of people doing God's will and what that means. Knowing God's will can be a lifelong endeavor, even as the Apostle Paul wrote, try to discern what is pleasing to God. Try to discern God's will. But here it's really simple. Because again, Jesus is dealing with the very foundations of what it means to be a disciple. And so yes, God's will is all-encompassing, but it always starts at the same place of repentance and faith. Even as Paul said in Acts, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent. That is, they should do God's will. They should turn away from all known sin and continue with daily sincere obedience. We should seek to love the Lord our God with all our heart mind, soul, and strength. That's the very foundation, the building blocks of what it is to do God's will. And you need to search that out and understand what that means for where you are 
in life and who you are and how God has made you. But it doesn't, it doesn't uh, move on from there. It always pivots from that point of repentance and faith. And the heart of a disciple navigates by that compass of thy will be done. That's what a member of Christ's family says. That's how he navigates. He has hands that don't attempt evil anymore. They attempt to do good. He has eyes that are not fixed on the things of the world, but on heavenly realities. He has a mind that trains not with not in uh, human knowledge, but in spiritual. He has ears that are attuned to the Word of God and not to the, the voices of the world. He has a belly that is not his God, but a desire for holiness. A Christian has a strong will for God's will, and he seeks to do all of it. He seeks to live a transformed and uh, new life, to have a new course in life. No longer living for self and pleasing self, but living for God and His will. And that's the second aspect of this trait, is that not only is it strong-willed, it is natural. This trait is natural. That is that they have a new nature, a new way of life. You see, the members of Christ's family are sons, not slaves. And as members of God's family, they obey because they have a new nature that loves, that loves God and loves to please Him. They love God above all else. And so it's only natural that they would want to please Him. You don't have to teach a fish how to swim. It's in His nature. And there's a sense in which it's like that, that for a member of Christ's family, obedience is as natural as swimming. God takes a sinner and transforms them and gives them new spiritual life so that obedience is automatic. It is a habit of life. They intuitively obey. Not occasional obedience, but habitual obedience. A lifestyle of living God's will. Now sure, we are still growing and maturing in our understanding, but members of Christ's family inherit that trait of doing the will of God. It's like riding a bicycle, where in the beginning you have to learn how to balance and how to steer, but with enough practice and time outside and scraped knees, you understand. It just becomes ingrained in your, your muscle memory of how to ride a bike. You don't have to think about it anymore. It's intuitive. And so Christians obey because they have that new nature. It's natural for them to do that. The world tries to make God out to be some overbearing, bloodthirsty tyrant. And if that was the case, no one would want to obey God. But God is known by His people as a caring, a wise, a compassionate Father, a gracious Father, and so they want to please Him. And this is only possible because of who God is and because of His power. This is a natural trait because of grace and because of God's goodness. You can't do God's will any more than you can save yourself. Those things are impossible with man, but they are possible with God. It's all of grace. And so to, to bring that out, it, this is, in other words, a, a fruit trait. It's not a tree trait. 
And so, uh, just like Jesus said, you shall know a tree by its fruit. The family of God is known by its obedience. Obedience doesn't make you part of the family. It's like if in my neighborhood, if, if one of the neighbor kids came over and started to, uh, you know, went to the shed, got my lawnmower, and started to mow my lawn. And I went out and said, neighbor kid, what are you doing mowing my lawn? And he said, well, Mr. Dunlap, I, I just uh, really would like to be your son. Well, I'd say, I really appreciate that, and that warms my heart, and I love you, but you can't be my son just by mowing the lawn. But if my son, Elimelech, got the lawnmower out of the shed and started cutting the grass, and I say, son, what are you doing? And he says, well, Dad, I just, I love you, and I wanted to help by mowing the lawn. I think that would make any of us fathers cry. I think that would warm our hearts to see that our son is caring, he's conscientious enough to want to cut the grass for his dad. That would be natural. That would be right. You can't obey your way into sonship. A pile of fruit does not a tree make. And so a son of God is known by this obedience, but they're not made a son of God by this obedience. To join this family, it is all of grace. To join this family, you must have faith. Alexander McLaren says, relationship must proceed, precede excuse me, obedience. Faith is the root of that relationship. Obedience is the flower and fruit. So this is a description of the family of God. It's not telling us how to be a member of the family. It's telling us again what they all have in common. This family characteristic is bearing the fruit of doing the will of God. So this family trait is strong-willed, it's natural, and thirdly, it's common. Anyone can have it. Jesus said, whoever does the will of God. It's like Wawa Hoagie Day in Philadelphia. When I used to live in Center City, that day would come and there would be tables laid out there by the Liberty Bell and anyone who wanted could come. There was no restriction on you know, uh, your income level or your need. Uh, it's, it wasn't according to background or you didn't have to qualify with some IQ test. Everyone was welcome. But here, this love and this, this family embraces all who come. There's not a limited number of spots. There's no restriction. There's no privileged aristocracy. The Lord Jesus' eye is not on simply the award winners or some short list, but on the obedient, the God-fearing. So if you have regard for God, then God has, Christ has regard for you. Your family background matters not. Whether you came from a broken home or the model a home in the community, whether your parents were abusive to you or encouraged you to do whatever your heart wanted. It doesn't matter because Christ is establishing a new household by his blood. People who long fought, people who were at odds against each other, even as much as a conservative Republican or a, a liberal, people who were enemies are now united in Christ. They can all sit around the same table. 
And all different kinds are joined together in Him. And so this trait is common. But fourthly, and paradoxically, it's also rare. It's common, but it's rare. It's as rare as finding a genuine Prada handbag from a New York City street vendor. It just doesn't happen very often. There are many knockoffs, many counterfeits, and it's hard to find the genuine article. Even as Jesus exhorted in Matthew 7, He said, not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who will? If it's hard for the rich to get in, if it's hard for the religious elite who are hypocrites to get in, who can enter the kingdom of God? Who does the will of My Father who is in heaven? They will, win- they will enter, Jesus said. And so it's only those who have this feature, this distinguishing family trait, who are members with Christ. It's the way to know immediately whether a Christian is who they say they are. It's like if I, if I meet someone and they say they're a mechanic, and I say, oh, that's great, because uh, I'm having problems with my car, and so could you help me out? What is your experience being a mechanic? And they say, well, I know all, all about fixing cars. I've been doing it all my life. I mean, I know they they have four wheels and an engine, and you need gas to run them. And I know all about cars. You'd think, well, okay, I don't know much about cars, but there's a whole lot more about them than that. If that was all I needed to know, I could fix it. But I wouldn't think you're a mechanic if you know that level, if that's your experience. And similarly, if you claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and yet you do not know God's will, or you know God's will and you're not doing God's will, then I know that you are not together with Christ. You are not members one with Him. Only those who do the will of the Father in heaven will enter His kingdom. And so that family trait, that family characteristic, it, is, it revolves around the will of God. It's a natural thing to obey. It's common. It's rare. All of the members of Christ's family have this trait. And so why would Christ point to this teaching? Why use the opportunity to teach the disciples and us about this family of God, this kindred of Christ? I think it was three things. I think it was to challenge them to comfort them, and to communicate His love to them. The first, to challenge them. To challenge their loyalty. Pastor Martin wrote that attachment to Christ is the central idea and governing principle of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? Principally, it is to be attached to Christ. There were many who followed what Jesus did. Many listened to Him. Um, Many watched the miracles that He performed. And that was good. But when it comes down to it, who are you going to be loyal to? That was the challenge. Who is there allegiance with? And this is really discipleship 101 as Jesus taught it. I mean, when when it comes down to it, are you going to choose family or God? Are you going to choose Christ or riches? The world or heaven? Where are your true desires? 
Because loyalty to Christ could cost you dearly. You will have to make choices. All the time, as a Christian, you will have to choose between Christ and all else. You might think, for instance, of a a soldier who's given an immoral order. Is he going to be loyal to country and his commander or loyal to Christ? Or a government that that gives orders in conflict with God's Word? Are we going to obey God or obey men? But family can pose a particularly heartbreaking challenge for the Christian. And Jesus warned of families getting in the way of true discipleship. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And you think back to perhaps this past holiday season, you may have been challenged to follow Christ or your family. Perhaps your family wanted to get together for Christmas Eve. That's always been a precious time for my family to gather. And yet, Christmas Eve this past year was on the Lord's Day. Are you going to be loyal to your commitment to your church and to your Lord or your commitment to family time? Think of a wife who must decide whether to please her husband or to honor God. Or a son who must decide whether to please his parents or marry in the Lord. And we all face mounting pressure to do God's will against God's will. Doing anything in God's name has become a byword for radicalism, for fanaticism, extremism. There are basic Christian duties, basic Christian values that our society labels as dangerous. Christians are reproached for doing good. So will you be ashamed of Christ or will you confirm your allegiance to him and do the will of God? It was meant as a challenge to his disciples, but more so, I think, and secondly, Jesus meant it to give comfort to them in the midst of opposition. Sometimes you just need an encouraging word to propel you forward, whether it's a quick pep talk before the second half or just a hearty, you're almost there, you're doing great. And with many potential enemies, many actual enemies for the disciple at this point, whether demonic, religious, or familial, they need to know that there is one who is for them, who will be faithful to them to the end, who will stick closer than a brother. And he gives the assurance of the psalmist in Psalm 27 that even if my father or mother should forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. If my family forsakes me, if neighbors accuse me, if religious people reproach me, even if demons oppress me, I'm still precious to Him. And if He's for me, then by that comfort, who can be against me? Who do I have to fear if I know that there is a loving Heavenly Father who is working out all things, superintending all things according to His wise and compassionate will? All the blessings of sonship in God's family can buoy our hearts. They can boost us up even in an overwhelming flood of opposition. So it's a comfort to them. It's a comfort that that Christ recognizes this feature in His people. Hearing that question from Christ, who are my mother and my brothers? 
maybe it would have seemed silly. And you think, Jesus, maybe you really have lost it. I mean, do you not know your family? Can you not see them? And he would say, yes, of course. I'm looking right at them. I see those who are turning from sin and doing God's will. Not perfectly, but sincerely. And he had no trouble recognizing it in him because recognizing it in them, that trait, because it was everything to him. Doing the will of God was the beating heart of his whole ministry in person. And so he's delighted to find it in others and recognize their, their common bond. It's not hard to recognize family. And sometimes, whether it's from a distance or seeing them in, in grainy video, you can say, oh, I know who that is because I know their walk. I know how their hands go by their side. And when Christ looks at a gathering of his people, of his disciples, he knows plainly who are his and who are not. He knows whose father is his father. He knows who does the will of God and who can sin without any regard for it. So you see the surpassing nature of spiritual family with a greater scope and a greater loyalty than natural affections. And then third, I think it was simply to communicate love for them. It was to challenge them. It was to comfort them and then simply to communicate love for them. And behold, what manner of love the Lord Jesus has for his disciples. He had just chosen these twelve to be with him. Will he now abandon them for his family? No, he loves them. He claims them as his own. Does that mean anything to you that Christ should claim you as his brother, as his sister, we ought to say, I'm what? I, I'm glad just to follow. I'm glad just to be a witness. I'm glad just to receive this teaching from heaven. I'm glad if you were just a prophet. But to claim that I am a member with you of your own family and to know no greater love than that a man lays down his life for those who are his friends, who are dearest to him. Friends, this is not just a general love that Jesus has for the family of God. It's not like we might say, we love this country. I love this country. I hope you do too. But I don't know the names of those who live in Wichita, Kansas, or in some, some small town of a thousand in North Dakota. I don't know their names. I have a general congregational corporate love, if you will, for the people of this country. But Christ carries personal affections for each and every one of his people. His eyes and his heart are not just for all, but for every. And I say that because of what the text says in verse 35. He says, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You might expect they are. All of these disciples, all of these faithful followers, they are the family of God. They are my family. But he says, This is. And so his family is dear to him. But Peter is dear to him. Andrew and John, he loves him very much. Every one of his disciples he loves. And Paul expresses this 
idea in Galatians 2.20 when he says that I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He states it as if the whole crucifixion was just for him. He had such an assurance of Christ's sacrifice on his behalf and his love for him personally that he could say, Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. And Jesus is mindful even of the least of all his brethren. His love, Christian, is set upon you. So may we know this love in all of its breadth and length and height and depth. Those dimensions of Christ's love extend to all of our need, whatever our need. And that's implied by how Jesus says in verse 35, not only is it each and every one who does the will of God, but he is my brother and sister and mother. What would it be for you to be the mother of Christ? Gentlemen, can you be the mother of Christ? What did Jesus mean to communicate by that? Does being the mother of Christ mean that you can boss him around and tell him what to do? No. What does, what does Scripture tell us about what it's like to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ? We see twice in Luke about Mary that she treasured up all these things in her heart. She receives spiritual she receives truth about her son, the Lord Jesus, and she treasures them up in her heart. She's blessed by the knowledge of Christ. Even if she's barren, he is her fruitfulness. He never forgets you. He never fails to provide for you, not even while enduring the agonies of the cross. It's a blessing to be Christ's mother. What is it to be Christ's brother? Can you imagine growing up with a big brother who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Would he not come to your defense? Would he not be gentle and protective? Would he not pick you up when you fell down? He would never betray you or forsake you. He sticks close through thick and thin. He's a faithful companion for life, a confidant. And you see, all relationships that are lost or longed for have their fulfillment in Christ. May you know the marvelous love of Christ that comes to everyone who does the will of God. They are dear to Him as brothers and sisters, as mothers. Brethren, may you know the love of Christ in all of its dimension. And so finally in closing, what, what shall we say to these things? I would just point you to two things. That first, love your family. Christians are engaged in a family endeavor. And brethren, when you meet here on, on the Lord's Day, this is a family meeting. When you receive the Lord's Supper, that is a family meal. The life of the church is a family life. You think how the New Testament epistles, they were written to the church, but they were written to family, brothers and sisters, my little children, brethren, these words are for you. We ought to love each other. We are members of the same body. 
We've been brought together through the blood of Christ to form a new household, a family of faith for the glory of God that surpasses even the best, even the closest of kindred relationships that are formed only in the flesh. See, being in a family matters. And I'm glad that my three children have a bigger family to grow up in than I ever did. I grew up in a small family. And I I want them to know the names of all of their cousins and, and uncles and aunts. But family is not first. Attachment to Christ. That is my greatest desire and prayer for them. My greatest desire for my children is to to join the family of God in Christ. And so you, you give many advantages to your children, many legitimate privileges, but they should know that your highest affections and your deepest devotion is for this family right here. People of God who are worth immeasurably more than all that the world has to offer. Teach them that there is a relationship that that goes beyond jerseys and face paint and tailgating, that goes beyond Thanksgiving and birthdays. The family of God is worth immeasurably more than all of that. You, brethren, are worth immeasurably more than whatever relationship the world can offer. And yes, I know even, even this family, because I don't know, uh, perhaps many hurts have happened, perhaps many offenses have taken place within this family, but our love covers a multitude of sins, and we forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. So hold the family of God even dearer in your affections and seek to do good, especially to those in the household of faith. May the world look upon us and say, see how they have loved one another. But then finally, I'd say to those of you who do not know Christ and who are afar off, come and join this family The psalmist wrote, God sets the lonely in families, and God makes a home for the lonely. Have you tried to do God's will? Have you tried to do what you know you ought to do? You've tried to be good, you've tried to obey, you've tried to do, tried to stop those things that you know are corrupting and hurting, and you failed. You you just you realize you have no power to do that. And it might be because it's as if you're trying to join the family by obeying. But you need to join the family, and then you'll be able to obey. And God the Father has sovereign power to transform you, to cause you to be born again. And God's great grace is great enough to wrap you into this family. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. So I say, repent and believe. And you say, I've tried that. It doesn't work. I'm still failing. And I say, go back and ask again. Jesus 
will never cast out one who comes to him. You see, the devil has no family. Yes, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. And there is, there is some sense in which there is a, a family connection there, common traits, but the family doesn't welcome any, uh, the devil doesn't welcome anyone with open arms. He is a liar, the father of lies. He's a murderer. There is no truth in him. Though you serve him your whole life, you're not precious to him. Everyone who comes to Christ is precious to him. Everyone who yields their life is precious to God. And so if you have known failure, if you've known rejection, if you've been abandoned, despised by your family, there extends a hand of mercy. There is a place where you can belong. There is a Savior who will receive you. If you've been a disappointment to your family, there is love and acceptance in Christ. His family is dear to Him, everyone. And so think of how people will jump through hoops of every kind, whether it's paying sums of money or doing elaborate uh, rituals to join exclusive clubs, secret societies. But the family of God is open to all. It's all of grace. And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his love for sinners to die on a cross and to take their penalty upon himself. But we thank you for your love, for your family. We pray that these things might minister to our hearts and that though family may forsake us, though friends may abandon us, Lord, whatever sorrows we know in this life, may you comfort our hearts by the love of Christ. May you draw near to us by that blood that has established a new household. May you draw near to us by that spirit of Christ in all of your glorious comfort and compassion. Minister to us in Jesus' name. Amen.